You are listening to the Campus Beat Podcast. I'm your host, Dinah Jansen. Each Wednesday at 5 p.m. on CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, I welcome a new guest from Queen's University to discuss news, issues, upcoming events, initiatives, and services for the benefit of Queen's students, faculty, staff, and alumni. Thanks for tuning in to this podcast, and we hope you enjoy the episode. I am in studio with Dr. Paula James, professor in the Department of Medicine, Division of Hematology at Queen's University and fellow of the Royal College of Physicians of Canada. Welcome to the studio today, Dr. James. Thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure to have you here. Tell us a little bit about yourself and the research that you're doing at Queen's University. So I'm a hematologist by training. So I went to medical school and did uh, residencies learning how to take care of people with blood diseases. And in my career, I focus on people who have problems with bleeding and clotting disorders, so inherited bleeding disorders and thrombotic disorders as well. And the, the bleeding disorder side of what I do ties into my research program as well. So I'm a clinician scientist and run a research lab focused on primarily two inherited bleeding disorders, um, one called von Willebrand's disease, which is the most common bleeding disorder, but nobody's ever heard of it, and then hemophilia, um, which is much rarer, but is one that people are more familiar with. Indeed. Okay. So I understand that you uh, completed your MD at the University of Saskatchewan, and you mentioned that you're a clinician scientist, but you are a professor as well. What steps have you been taking along the way uh, with your training, as well as your career path to move from medical practice to university research? So after high school, I did a couple of years at university Um, I didn't actually do an undergrad degree in Saskatchewan at the time. You could get into medical school after two years, and I was fortunate enough to do that. And so then I did four years of medical school. And then in Saskatoon, I did a three-year residency in internal medicine Mm -hmm. and then wanted to subspecialize in blood and blood disorders past that. And that was when my husband and I moved to Kingston in 1999. And so I did two years of clinical hematology, and then I had a baby, and then I came back and did three years of a research fellowship. So it was really that research fellowship that gave me the bug um, for clinical studies and bench studies and translational research. And so the job that I started um, on faculty at Queen's University in 2004 was as a clinician scientist. So with part of my time spent looking after patients and then a larger chunk of my time spent doing research and training graduate students um, and having other trainees come through my lab that are are interested in blood research. Fantastic. Now tell us a little bit more about the research itself. Let's start with the the basics. What is hemophilia A and uh, are there other categories of hemophilia and what are the differences in these? So hemophilia A is an inherited bleeding disorder. The inheritance pattern is what we call Mm X-linked, which means that the mutations are on the X chromosome and so carried by women. Because men only have one X chromosome, our thinking has been that men are the only ones who could be affected. They only have a single X chromosome that has a mutation. They don't have a normal X chromosome to protect them. And so they manifest a, a bleeding disorder. Hemophilia A 
is when the mutation is in the clotting factor, factor eight. Okay. So patients with hemophilia A are missing factor eight. The other common kind of hemophilia is hemophilia B, which is a mutation in the factor nine gene. So those patients are missing factor nine. There is a hemophilia that goes by the name hemophilia C. We use that term less commonly. More often we call those patients as having factor 11 deficiency, and that disease is inherited in a different fashion than the X-linked forms that I was talking about before. Okay. So what complications does hemophilia A present for women? So up until about a decade ago, people didn't even realize that carriers of hemophilia could have problems with bleeding, and it's been a real challenge for those individuals, even getting their symptoms acknowledged and recognized, let alone treated. And so for men and boys, males who have hemophilia, they get, in the severest form, they get bleeding into their muscles and joints. Mm -hmm. And we can see that to a lesser degree in women who are carriers, but what we see more of are problems with heavy menstrual bleeding, bleeding after childbirth, nosebleeds, bruising. So the disease manifests different, um, mm -hmm. differently in women and in men. And I think recognizing the problems that women were facing is something that's happened more recently. Okay. So you noted that there was a problem in recognition. So has it been a, uh, an issue for women to be taken seriously, for example, if they're going to their medical practitioner to say, um, I'm having a real problem with my, uh, the amount of bleeding uh, during my menstrual, menstrual cycle? It's been a huge challenge for them, and it is a major frustration of mine. Um, even today, I still have some women who come to my clinic and tell me that they're getting that kind of response. And I think there's a whole bunch of reasons for that. There's a lot of stigma against talking openly around issues of menstruation and about general un a general understanding. There's a lack of a general understanding of what's normal menstruation and what's abnormal. Mm -hmm. And I think that's been a real challenge for uh, many of these women who've had problems and who may have recognized themselves that something is not right here and then getting that acknowledged and diagnosed and treated. Sometimes, though, um, women themselves may not realize that having a period for 10 days and having to change your sanitary protection every hour and being iron deficient all the time, sometimes they don't realize that it's abnormal mm -hmm. because these are inherited diseases. So there may have been other women in the family with the same problems and then it gets normalized. Right, right. And, they, and if they've uh, experienced this for, unless there's an obvious change, but they've just experienced this all of their lives or at least since they started menstruating. Exactly, exactly. Uh -huh. And so they may not themselves even recognize that it's abnormal and that it could be made better with treatments. Indeed. Uh, now, your study has shown that compared to the control group, the factor eight response, the factor eight that you mentioned earlier in hemophilia A carriers, including those with normal clotting factor levels, was both significantly reduced and shorter lived. And these results were correlated with those that had higher levels of abnormal bleeding. This is what I've understood from your findings, but what does that actually mean in layperson's terms? Yeah. So this was the thesis um, project of a former master student of mine named Victoria Candy, who's now a medical student. Um, and the work that she did was based on an observation we had made in clinic, which is that hemophilia carriers who have abnormal bleeding, some of them 
have low factor eight levels. And so we have at least some understanding of why they might be having problems with bleeding. But there are hemophilia carriers who we are certain have abnormal bleeding through the use of a validated bleeding score that we developed. And they have normal baseline factor levels. So trying to understand why they're having bleeding was really the focus of uh, Victoria's work. And so we started to ask the question, well, perhaps it's not the baseline level that matters so much. It's the way your body responds to some kind of a challenge. And you can imagine that we evolved. Um, we've adapted uh, what we call a hemostatic response. And so if we get cut immediately, your coagulation system responds to that and clotting factor levels go up within yes. seconds so that you don't bleed to death, so that you stop bleeding. Mm -hmm. And what we started to wonder in these patients, perhaps the problem was that they couldn't increase the same way that a normal individual would. And indeed, that's what we found with this study. And so we had women who are carriers of hemophilia A and also normal women uh, who volunteered to help us out so that we had a control group that we could compare to mm -hmm. come in. And we gave them a medication called desmopressin or DDAVP. And it's a medication that causes stress on the cells that make factor eight and makes them release that. Okay. So it mimics the kind of response that you would have if you had been cut. Okay. And what we saw was that there was a big difference in the way that the women with hemophilia, the carriers of hemophilia A responded compared to the normal controls. They, the carriers weren't getting the same increase in levels and they weren't keeping the levels up for as long. And then when we correlated that back to this bleeding score that gives us an idea of how bad their bleeding was, there was definitely a correlation. So those who responded less well were bleeding more. Okay. I really liked your uh, giving us some insights into what it looked like in your lab. Can you tell us a little bit more about the research process for the study? Yeah, so in my lab, we're kind of split 50-50 in terms of clinical work that we do with patients and populations and then things that we do on the bench um, with pipettes and test tubes. And so this project really involved both sides of that. Um, and so one of the nice things for Victoria was that she got to meet all of these participants and hear their stories, which sometimes is missing, I think, for people who are doing just the bench research, not necessarily mm -hmm. having the chance to meet the individuals that they're studying and get a sense of what their disease and their symptoms mean for their life. Mm -hmm. So we brought these individuals into um, the Patient Research Center on Connell 4 in KGH and interviewed them in terms of their bleeding so that we could get a bleeding score, took some blood, gave them the desmopressin, took more blood samples after so we could track the response. Then all the blood got walked back over to Etherington Hall, which is where my research lab is. Mm -hmm. And then Tori worked to do the assays that were required to see what had happened to the clotting factor levels. So really her project was a mix of clinical interaction with patients and with normals and then some bench work. So I think a really nice example of what we call translational research and mm -hmm. trying to take what we've seen in the clinic and what we learn from patients and study that in the lab with the idea that hopefully in the long term or maybe in the shorter term, what we learn in the lab, then we could use that to help patients. Okay. Now, uh, where have you published and presented uh, your study findings so far? So this paper was published in a journal called Blood Advances. 
um, which is a journal of the American Society of Hematology. And it's a newer open access journal that we were really delighted when they accepted this paper and published it. Victoria had the chance during her studies to present this at a couple of meetings. Um, one's a national meeting of the Association of Hemophilia Clinic Directors of Canada. So all of us who run bleeding disorder clinics mm -hmm. get together once a year and show each other our work and our research, and Victoria was able to present there. She also um, was able to present in Scottsdale, Arizona, at an international meeting on mm -hmm. hemostasis and thrombosis. So that was a great opportunity for her. And a really great mentorship opportunity, I think, for you, too. Some, uh, the, she was a graduate student, but now in medical school. Yeah, I'm very proud of what she did in my lab and equally proud of what she's going on to do now. Wonderful. Now, um, tell us a little bit more about the implications of the research. Um, how might it shape uh, continued research into this area, or perhaps even medical practice? So I think it's uh, a step um, along the way in understanding bleeding in hemophilia carriers. I think where we're heading is that there probably are a number of things that come into play and go wrong for these women that lead to their bleeding symptoms. And so part of it is if there's someone who has a low factor level. Part of it is if they have a low factor level or if they have a normal factor level and they don't respond the way they're supposed to. I think there probably are a couple of other factors that we haven't identified yet and we're continuing to work on that. Mm -hmm. The idea is once we understand why they're bleeding, then we could use that information to decide how to treat them properly. And thankfully, we have a lot of treatments for heavy menstrual bleeding, which is one of their major issues that are general and that work for many causes of heavy menstrual bleeding, including being a hemophilia carrier. And so it's not like these women are out there waiting 10 more years for us to completely figure it out. Mm -hmm. um, we do have some treatments that we can give them now, but it would be ideal, I think, to be able to hone those and optimize them for that specific group of patients. And that's really where what we're working towards. Okay. Now, what inspired your initial specialty and uh, then your research interests in hematology? When I was in medical school, I had a teacher named Dr. Sheila Rutledge-Harding, who is a hematologist and who was very passionate about what she did um, and was a great mentor to me in terms of sparking my interest in blood and more specifically in what gets called benign hematology. Benign makes it sound like our diseases aren't that important, which is completely not true, <laughs> but Indeed. not cancer. Um, and so a lot of hematology is focused on leukemia and lymphoma, and that's very important. But um, she was really more interested in bleeding and clotting and sparked my interest in those issues as well. And then after I came to Kingston to do my hematology training, I met another important mentor in my life, Dr. David Lillicrap, who's an internationally recognized clinician scientist who works on hemophilia and has done in very important seminal work on hemophilia gene therapy mm -hmm. to try to cure the disease um, long term. And it was him that it was his lab where I did my research fellowship. And so I think the path that I've taken has been very influenced by strong mentors and people who are smart and nice and fun to be around. Um, and then once I started in clinical practice, it's my patients. So it's the problems that I see in clinic that inspire me to continue doing research to try to help them. And also my interactions with them give me some idea of what's most important and what I should focus on. Mm -hmm. 
Now, what do you find perhaps most challenging in the work that you do with your team? In the beginning, I used to worry about coming up with research ideas. But like I said, just going to clinic fixed that problem because all the time in clinic, I'm hearing from my patients that are telling me in the real world, these are the challenges they're dealing with. Mm -hmm. So I I think as a clinician scientist, um, and this isn't an interesting answer, but it's probably one you'd hear from many people like me, the biggest challenge is funding. Okay. So it's coming up with research funding. Um, Where does your research funding come from? (laughs) So right now I'm funded through uh, a number of grant um, competitions. The Canadian Haemophilia Society uh, has been very supportive of the work that I do. Um, I'm involved with a study funded through the NIH in the United States Mm -hmm. looking at the bleeding disorder von Willebrand's disease and at von Willebrand factor. Mm -hmm. And I've had some industry-sponsored funding as well so that I can pay my grad students and pay my staff and buy test tubes and reagents that they need to do the research. But that sounds like an additional challenge to the, you're a clinician scientist, that sounds like that occupies a fair amount of your work week, but then you also must continue to seek out and apply for grants, which I imagine the process is also quite extensive. Yeah, it is. I spend a great deal of my time writing grants. Um, I'm writing a big grant right now. I enjoy it. I enjoy Mm -hmm. writing. It's an interesting thing about my career that, you know, before I got into medical school, I liked English a lot. Um, But I sort of knew my path was going to be more towards science and medicine. So it's been interesting that I've been able to spend a fair time of my writing, my time writing as a scientist and as a clinician. So I write five or six grants a year, Mm -hmm. um, knowing that I'm not going to get them all, just so that I can keep the lab funding and and keep people paid and and us able to continue to do do the work that we're doing. And keep yourself inspired too, because as you're trying to sell a particular project to a funding organization, you have to get them excited. So I imagine the the writing in of itself, you get yourself all pumped up too. Exactly. That that does sound like fun. And what do you love most about the work that you do? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think it's a tie. Interacting with patients and having them trust us and come to clinic and tell us their stories, which sometimes are painful and difficult, um, and then being able to help them make their lives better, that's very rewarding. Mm -hmm. And tied, um, I think that's tied with me being a supervisor for graduate students. I really love the interaction with trainees and helping students develop their research ideas and seeing the light go on. Um, in their brain when they get to meet my patients and understand what it is that we're so focused and, and dedicated to doing. So you became inspired because of your mentors, but you also uh, love most now being a mentor for others. Absolutely. Fantastic. Uh, so where can people learn more about your research, uh, about your lab, and otherwise seek you and your work out? So we have a website, uh, and so if you just Google Paula James Queen's University it'll come up and my lab website is shared with uh, Dr. Lily Crap who I mentioned because we run our research labs together mm-hmm. um, collaboratively as a research group the other place people could go if they were interested in some of the things that we're doing is to a website that we launched a couple years ago called let's talk period mm-hmm. and that website's easy to find if you just google let's talk period.ca and 
is focused on addressing some of the things we were speaking about earlier in terms of there being a lack of good information that's available to people in the general public around bleeding, what's normal, what's abnormal, particularly when it comes to periods. And so there's lots of small bits of information on the site that are quickly digestible about, you know, if your period's lasting longer than seven days or you're iron deficient, those things might require additional attention. And then on that website, we've built in uh, a tool called the SelfBat. And that's a self-administered version of the bleeding scores and bleeding assessment tools I was talking about earlier. In clinic, if I'm interviewing a patient, um, I'm using very often what we call an expert-administered bleeding assessment tool. And so, not that I'm any more expert than patients, but uh, when it comes to their symptoms, but where I'm asking some questions and interpreting the results. The self-bat is a tool that people could fill out. Um, if you've got a grade four reading level, you can fill it out yourself and it will tell you when you get to the end what your bleeding score is and if that's normal for your age and sex or not. Mm. And so you can take this test, get a printout that says your bleeding score is 20 and it shouldn't have been any higher than five. Mm -hmm. And so you should speak to your physician about that. So that's somewhere people could go if they're wondering about their own symptoms or, or just looking for more information about what we do. All right. And as a final question, uh, when women um, want to go and approach their physician to say, I, there's something going on here, uh, do you have any particular advice uh, for women uh, who want to be feel comfortable to be able to talk about uh, their menstruation cycle and their amount of bleeding, but also what to do if uh, if, if their doctor does not actually take them seriously. What should women do in that situation? Yeah, this is a difficult problem. And I, I think it's becoming less common than it was. Um, the way we teach issues of menstruation and about bleeding disorders in medical school has really changed. Uh, and so I think we're training a new generation to be more aware and more responsive when they hear about these kinds of problems. Um, one thing that might help is if people are on our website and take the self-bat, as I said, you can get a printout at the end mm -hmm. that you could take with you to see your physician. And it's clear that the site has been put up by someone with expertise in this area. Mm -hmm. I'm Canadian enough that saying I have expertise is a difficult thing for me, but <laughs> at least somewhere that's reputable and it's um, branded with Queens and um, that we've done things carefully. We've published what we're talking about in peer-reviewed scientific journals. And, mm -hmm. um, and so we have, I certainly have seen patients who've been referred to my clinic because they've gone that route, that mm -hmm. they've taken this self-bat printout to their family physician and the family physician has said, oh, okay, well, this looks reputable. I'll refer you on for further assessment. I think advocating um, for yourself as a patient is really important. And I think if you're hitting a roadblock with a physician, which like I said, I, I think is happening less than it used to, but there are other resources. Um, the Canadian Hemophilia Society has a great website with good resources on it about bleeding disorders and accurate information that might also be of benefit. Okay. Thank you very much for that information. And thank you very much, Dr. Paula James, for your time for and coming in and uh, telling us all about your research and the mentorship opportunities that you're providing for graduate students here at Queen's. Thanks for your time. It was nice to chat.
Thanks again, everyone out there in Radioland for tuning in to another episode of Campus Beat. And thanks to Dr. Paula James for coming into the studio uh, to tell us all about her research. Paula James is the professor in Department of Medicine, Division of Hematology at Queen's and a fellow of the Royal College of Physicians of Canada. It was a real pleasure having you in the studio, Dr. James. We are going to close our show today with uh, two cellos and their cut fabulous cover of Seven Nation Army. So uh, stay tuned for that. And uh, thanks again for tuning into Campus Beat here at CFRC 101.9 FM. Mm-hmm.